0: Turn your Bibles, if you will, tonight to John chapter 1. I had in my heart uh, a couple of days ago to uh, to go through the gospel of John verse by verse. And that's uh, that's not the way that I normally teach. Uh, I, I have done that on occasion with uh, a few of the books in the New Testament. But I got kind of excited about that because I I started thinking about it. The last time I remember going through the gospel of John, really studying the gospel of John, was in Bible school. And that was a few days ago. And uh so I'm looking forward to this. I I'm I've uh already dusted off some old notes and I'm looking forward to learning some new things about it that I wasn't mature enough to know back then as well. And uh so we're gonna go through start tonight and start going through the book of John, the Gospel of John, and uh just see what the Lord has for us there. Now <clears throat> any time that we that we start with uh um uh, going through a, a book of the New Testament verse by verse or any book of the Bible verse by verse, um we always stop and take the time to talk about who wrote it, and, and um, we spend a lot of time on, on the Book of Hebrews doing that. If you remember, I caught a lot of flack for that, as a matter of fact. But um, uh, it, this is this is pretty simple operation. We know who wrote this. John is the is the author. John is the uh, the last writer of of any of the New Testament books. It's um, uh, his gospel is, um, and you may not you may not know the history about how the Bible is arranged or why it's arranged the way that it is. But um, but the the writings and the theme of the book of John has a lot of the Gospel of John. If I call it the book of John, you understand I'm talking about the Gospel of John, right? Well, the the theme of the Gospel of John has a lot to do with where it's located, because as you know, there are four Gospels: Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called synoptic Gospels. Now, what that means is synoptic is a compound word. Sin, s y n is a prefix that means the same thing. Optic means to see. So it's the synoptic Gospels mean that Matthew, Mark, and Luke let you see the same thing about Jesus, but not John. It's not identified as a part of the synoptic Gospels. It kind of bridges the, between the Gospels and the church age. Now, Matthew was an accountant. He was one of the original 12. He was an accountant. He's a bookkeeper. Well, you know what's going to matter to a bookkeeper, the details. I mean, he's all into the details. He's not into the relationships. And Matthew really doesn't talk too much about relationships other than human relationships and, and gives us some details about that. Matthew, the theme of the, of the gospel of Matthew is Jesus is the king of the Jews. Now, Mark took it from a different uh, different perspective. Mark was Barnabas' nephew. And um, uh, we don't know exactly when. Uh, there There is some evidence that would indicate that Mark was the first of the gospels written. If that was the case, then it was it would have been in Paul's day. Uh, but we don't know that for sure. That's uh, There's some evidence to suggest that, but it's not concrete. But at any rate, Mark's gospel is uh, identifying Jesus as the servant of God, the perfect workman. Luke has a different theme. And that is the theme of the, the gospel of Luke is that Jesus is the ideal man, the perfect man ideal for redemption, ideal, ideal to be a, a savior. But John's gospel is different. Now, you need to understand, and and I'm I'm sure you already do recognize this, but I think when we put it in the Bible context, we sometimes throw out rational and common sense thinking and and get misty-eyed about certain things. You know as well as I do that you don't sit down to write a letter or a book or anything else without having an idea in mind of what you're going to say. Don't think that any of these writers followed Jesus around with a pen and paper. Matthew was the only one that could have done that, and he didn't. We know John didn't do it because of the the theme of uh, the book of John and the the things that he talks about. That was not the case. And John talks about things in more of a big picture um, point of view than than the the other three anyway. Well, then if somebody didn't walk around with Jesus with a pen and paper, then that means they're either operating on what the Holy Ghost revealed to them or stories that they have heard if they were not eyewitnesses. In other words, Matthew and, and, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Mark and Luke are going entirely off of what what they've heard. But that doesn't mean the Holy Ghost didn't prompt them to do it. I mean, we might look at it and say, well, God would certainly choose an eyewitness. Well, not necessarily. For one thing, Luke is the only Gentile writer of any of the books of the Bible. Everybody else was a Jew. And consequently, Luke handles things and deals with things in his gospel relative to Jesus' ministry with the Gentiles in a different way than anybody else does. On top of that, he was educated as, a, as a, a doctor, a physical doctor, a physician. And consequently, he tells us some details about healing and the healing ministry of Jesus that the others don't. So you can readily see why God would pick Luke to, to minister or to, uh, to write the gospel that he did. Mark writes about Jesus as being the servant of God. And remember, Mark is the one that left Paul and Barnabas on that first missionary journey, and it created such a problem between Paul and Barnabas that the second missionary journey, Barnabas wanted to take him again. And Paul said no, and split ties, cut off ministry relationship with Barnabas. Why? Because Mark was in a position where he failed as a servant, yet he writes about Jesus being the perfect servant. See, sometimes you hear people say, well, you can't really minister to somebody unless you've been there on your own. Really? Seriously? Well, if that's the case, then Jesus is never going to be able to relate to any of us because he never sinned. Yet the Bible says that he is tempted. He was tempted in all points like as we are. Yet without sin, he can relate to us. He's touched with the feelings of our infirmities. So when you get to the book of John, the gospel of John, John starts off different than anybody else. Everybody else starts off with something about Jesus' lineage. Matthew goes into great detail about Jesus being of the line of David and the son of Abraham. Luke goes into great detail about his lineage, too. Mark gives us a little bit of detail, a little bit of information, but not a lot of detail, I should say. John starts off totally different. Look at what John said, starting off in John chapter 1, verse 1. He said, in the beginning. Now, the first thing that John starts off with is the beginning. Not Jesus' birth. Not Jesus' mother, not Jesus' father, not even the Holy Ghost overshadowing Mary. None of those things. He knows those gospels have already been written. He knows those are already out there. He starts off with in the beginning. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. Now we're going to skip down a little bit to to, uh, set ourselves up so that we can talk about some things freely and not uh, have to worry about uh, backtracking. Verse 14 says, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Here's the theme of the book of John, and he starts off with the first words, and that is in the book of John, the gospel of John, the theme is Jesus, the Son of God. Now, because that's the theme, he tells us things that nobody else tells us. He gives us information about the Holy Ghost that none of the other gospel writers give us. Why didn't Matthew tell us? You know as well as I do that John spends a lot of time, verses, chapters 14, 15, and 16, on the Last Supper. And chapter 17, he tells us about Jesus praying before he was betrayed, a high priestly prayer where he's praying that God would be in us just like we're in him and all in together. Why don't the others? Why didn't Matthew? He was there. Did he not remember that? That seems to be pretty important to me because the theme of Matthew was totally different. Matthew's not concerned with trying to prove that Jesus was the Son of God. Maybe he assumed everybody would know that because of the miracles that he witnessed and they knew about. But Matthew is concerned with, with proving to the Jews that Jesus was qualified to be the Redeemer, to be the Messiah. But John tells us stuff nobody else tells us. John the one that gives us information about, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. None of the others did. Again, Matthew would have been a, an eyewitness to that. But that was not the thing that he was focused on. Why? Because that was the thing the Jews were trying to kill him for. Every time Jesus would say he was in the Father or the Father was in him, that's when the Jews took up stones to kill him. So Matthew is not going to make points in getting uh, uh, gaining credibility or winning over the Jews by talking about Jesus being one with the Father. Instead, he goes back to the Old Testament prophecies and proves it systematically. John, however, tells us about heavenly things. The three other gospels, the synoptic gospels, talk about Jesus' relationship with humanity. John's the one that tells us about Jesus' relationship from a heavenly standpoint. And it talks about Jesus' relationship not among the people, but among the sons of God. Among the family of God. Not about the Jews. Now, the other three Gospels start off with Jesus being uh, ministering to the Jews and every one of them, Matthew, uh, Matthew 11, for example, is the last time Jesus ministers to the Jews. And then by the time we get to Matthew 13, there's a there's a little break there. Matthew 13, he goes to the Gentiles because he's been rejected of the Jews. Same thing with Mark halfway through the book. He ministers, starts ministering to the Gentiles rather than to the Jews exclusively. Same thing with Luke starts off ministering to the Jews, then shifts focus. After the Jews reject him, after it becomes clear that the Jews have have rejected him, turned away from him, and so forth, then he goes and ministers to the Gentiles that are there in in uh, in, in, uh, in the surrounding areas of of uh, Israel. Now, John, John starts off right away talking about Jesus ministering to everybody, ministering to the whole world. He said, "In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God." Now, start uh, start with me to think about what is John trying to get across. Read this like you've never seen it before. Let's say you've read the other Gospels. Let's say that you've heard others preach about Jesus. But now you're going to read something from an eyewitness, somebody that you know. John is famous by this time. This book was probably written after Peter and, and Paul are dead. This book is probably written anywhere from 75, maybe to 85, maybe even to 90 B.C. or A, I'm sorry, A.D., after Jesus. Well, Paul probably died somewhere around 68 to 70 A.D. Peter probably somewhere around the same time, maybe a couple of years different, maybe a couple of years longer. He lived a couple of years longer, perhaps. Uh, at least uh, evidence seems to suggest that. Nobody knows for sure. This stuff isn't written down. We don't have Peter or Paul's birth certificate and death certificate and that kind of stuff, so we have to approximate. But John is on the scene for many, many, many years after that. And you remember the last part of John's life. The last part of John's life is he is the elder statesman. He's on the scene for maybe as much as 20 to 30 years later. After Peter and Paul, the the pillars of the church are gone. John's ministry is encompassed being the pastor of the church at Ephesus. His ministry is encompassed being the caretaker of of Mary, the mother of Jesus. You remember John's the one that Jesus talked to when he was standing on the cross. said, woman, behold your son. John, behold your mother. In other words, he's giving the care of his mother over to john john must have had some kind of special place with jesus he was one of jesus favorites he's one of the three of jesus favorites peter james and john he was a prayer partner in other words when jesus went alone to pray he'd shut everybody else out and take those three now sometimes he didn't take anybody but anytime he took special ones in special situations he took peter james and john so john and peter and james uh Uh, James, John's brother, had an opportunity to see things that some of the others didn't see. He saw things Matthew didn't see. He heard Jesus say things that that Matthew didn't hear. He witnessed certain things. And as a result, now John, the elder statesman, the one who at the end of his life became such a threat to society, uh, not only the Romans, but then those that came after, became such a threat to society, they tried to kill him and couldn't. They tried to boil him in oil and he he wouldn't die. So finally, they wind up just exiling him to the island of Patmos. Well, if we can't kill him, we'll try to get rid of him. Well, that's where he sees the revelation of the things to come. What we know of as the book of Revelation. You remember at the end of uh, Jesus' life, he spoke of the disciples, and they got in a real argument about what's going to happen after Jesus goes. In your kingdom, Jesus, who's going to be the greatest and stuff like that? Peter asks what's going to happen to him, and Jesus tells him, when you're old, people will bind you and take you where you don't want to go. Well, I don't know about you, but I wouldn't want that prophecy. Would you? Oh, gee. So Peter does the thing that all of us would do. He turns and looks at John and says, well, what's, what's going to happen to him? Is it going to be worse for him than it is me? And Jesus said, if I want him to stay till I come back, what's that to you? Now, John says, John ends his, uh, uh, concludes his uh, uh, gospel by saying, Everybody said that I was going to stay alive until Jesus came back, but that's not what he said. What he said was, what is it to you if I want him to stay alive? Well, why did he write that? Because at this point, he's older than dirt. Everybody's thinking that he can't die, and he has seen the power of God pr- pr- protect him and deliver him from death over and over again. John's, uh, John's uh, epistles, his letters to the church, the theme of all those letters are the love of God. So we see what kind of man he is. So John sits down inspired by the Holy Ghost. Now, I don't know how that works. I know of people that have been inspired to write books and they sit down and they have an idea and that idea turns out to be something that God really prompted them to do, but it's not like God gives them word for word to say. At least nobody that I've ever witnessed. Now I don't know what, it, I don't know if it's different for the, for, for that which becomes scripture. Somebody tell me. I don't know. But I know it's not some deliver yourself over and and you lose consciousness and you auto-write stuff. That's not the way the Holy Ghost works. So what does that mean? Well, to me it means that God prompted John to write things for a specific reason. Now, did he know the whole reason for why he was writing things? Rarely do we. I know there are times when, uh, and this, please forgive me for such a poor comparison, But there are times where people come up to me after a service and they'll say, Pastor Mike, when you took this rabbit trail or when you took this side journey and and said this, that, and the other, oh, that was just for me. Well, that wasn't even the part of what I was supposed to be ministering on. I mean, that just came as kind of an incidental thing, yet that helped somebody. Well, I wasn't planning all week. It wasn't like the Holy Ghost spoke to me and said, now at a certain point in time in your message, make sure to take this rabbit trail. That's not the way it works. God uses us as we give ourselves over to it. But you don't lose consciousness. It's not like it's God takes you over and usurps your will in some way or another. That means John understands why it's important for him to write a gospel that is themed as Jesus being the Son of God. So where does he start? He starts before creation. Genesis 1-1, which John knows, says in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John starts before that. He's talking about Jesus being the son of God, and he starts before that. He says, G- Genesis 1.1 speaks of in the beginning, God creating the heavens and the earth. The beginning of the earth, the beginning of the creation. John starts way before that. He says, in the beginning was the word. Now, there's two words that are used in the Greek and translated was. Verse 1, in the beginning uh, was the word. That's one example. Another example is in verse 6, where it says, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. Both of these words are translated was in the English language, but they're two different Greek words. The word was in verse 1 and 2, and other places as well, means to exist. The word in verse 6 means to become or came into being. So where it says here in verse 1, in the beginning was, it means in the beginning. And, And by the way, there is no participle, there is no the, no article, I should say. There is no word the in the Greek in this verse. In beginning was the word. In beginning. Well, what beginning? It's not the beginning of creation. The reason we know it's not the beginning of creation is because verse 3 says all things were created by him. So he's got to be talking about before that. So what beginning is it? In beginning was the word. It means it says first and foremost that Jesus was from the beginning, which means he's eternal. First thing John says. Doesn't say anything about his birth, doesn't say anything about him in the manger, doesn't say anything about the shepherds and the angels and all this kind of stuff, nothing about his lineage. He starts off and says, here's where he was in the beginning before we can even imagine he was with God. So what does he say? He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. That indicates a presence with God. That means the Word is not just some ethereal, spokenness it means it's a personality why because he was with god you go back to the book of proverbs and you talk about and look at the times where wisdom is personified where wisdom it says wisdom cries in the streets and and wisdom does this that and the other that's the same thing as talking about jesus in the beginning as the word In the beginning, Jesus was the word. Jesus is the word now. Jesus will always be the word throughout eternity. eternity, And he was with God before there ever was anything. And that's the first place that John starts. First place John starts. Let me ask you a question. Who's John trying to reach? Matthew is trying to reach the Jews. Luke is trying to reach the Gentiles. Mark is trying to reach whoever would read. Who's John trying to reach? Seriously, you write a book with an audience in mind. Who's he trying to reach? Who wouldn't you reach by proving that Jesus was the eternal and co-equal with God? Who wouldn't you reach with that? And folks, remember, that's where the Jews wanted to kill Jesus. We'll see it over and over and over, mostly in the book of John, where the Jews wanted to kill Jesus because he said, I and my father are one. He said before Abraham, before your father, Abraham was, I am. He identifies himself as the one who said in the Old Testament, which the Jews all knew about, I am that I am, sends Moses. And oh, that did not go over well. So what's John do? John's at the end of his life. they tried to kill him and can't. So he starts off. He says Jesus was from the beginning. He was with God. He was God himself. He identifies that Jesus was the Son of God, Jesus was with God, Jesus is co-equal with God, he is eternal, he is everlasting, and he is God. John fulfills some of the Old Testament prophecies like nobody else in the in the, uh, the gospel writers. Let me show it to you, let me prove some things to you. Turn back with me, uh, we'll try to get back to John chapter 1. I'm not really going to try to get too far into the book tonight. Tonight's kind of laying the foundation. So you can put your finger here and mark your... Uh, Bibles to John chapter 1, we we may or may not get back to it, we'll see. But turn with me over to, uh, first of all, to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9, and then Micah chapter 5. I know your Bible just automatically falls open to, open to Micah, so might want to head start on that one. As soon as I said that, I can't find it. Isaiah chapter nine. Isaiah was a prophet to Israel primarily. And Isaiah came to a certain point in his ministry and he said, you know, we need a great Christmas scripture. So he wrote Isaiah chapter nine and verse six. Cause that's the only time we hear the scripture is Christmas. For unto us a child is born. For unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. Now have any of you ever heard that scripture other than Christmas time? That's the one they all talk about when Jesus is in the manger. Blessed baby Jesus in the manger. I'm glad he grew up out of that thing. Here's what I want you to understand. Isaiah is not ministering he is not writing he is not thinking about some christmas scripture he is inspired by the holy ghost to prophesy about the messiah and what does it say about the messiah it says unto us a child is born but the son was given what does that mean that means the son existed before the child was ever born That means the son existed before the child was ever born. Now, what does that mean to us? Well, notice what his names are. Notice what the names of this son is or are. His name shall be called Wonderful. Well, we can agree on that. Counselor. John's the one that tells us about the counselor. John's the one that tells us about the comforter, the Holy Ghost. He's the one that tells us about Jesus bringing all things to our remembrance. Or um, the Holy Ghost bringing all things to our remembrance, excuse me. So he says, what else is he going to be called? What else is the son going to be called? He's going to be called the mighty God. How is the son called a mighty God? I thought the son was the son. How is it that the son is the son? John addresses in a very subtle way the Trinity, which none of the other gospel writers touch. Remember where we started, John 1. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. Now, how can the word be with God? Why does it say the word was with God? And then it goes further and says the word was God. How can you be with somebody that you are? Here's where a lot of the church, a lot of believers seem to have a problem, and that's with the idea of the concept of the Trinity. Well, what is it? Is God three people? Is it three different names for God? Here's one place where the Jews have a problem with Christians, because one of their favorite scriptures, one of their all time great theme scriptures is the Lord is one. uh, The Lord is God. He is one. It's an Old Testament scripture from Isaiah. The Lord is God. He is one. Well, they hear us talking about the Trinity and they think, well, you're out of your mind. God is one. Well, how do you reconcile this stuff? Well, think of it like this. Think of some words that we use. The word that's used for God is the word Elohim, and it's in the plural. It means more than one, yet it means one. How can that, how can we reconcile that? Well, look at the way we use the word team. You get in a sports contest, and, it, and two teams are playing. Does that mean everybody that, that is on the team is on the field or on the floor? You've got some team members that start the game. You've got some team members that are specialized in their work, you've got other team members that sit on the, on the sidelines waiting for their opportunity to come in if they needed, if the circumstances warrant them coming into the game. But everybody's the team. Everybody makes up the team, right? In the same way, the Father, God the Father, God the Son, the Word, and God the Holy Ghost make up God. Any and every one of them in and of themselves are God. And together, because they're united and single in purpose, and intent and in character, together, they make up the Elohim or God. Another way we use the word, a similar way that we use a word, is an army. What is an army? An army is a group of people, but it's one army. Now, there are specialized work workers, specialized soldiers and, and, and specific uh, activities and things that they're trained to do, but they all make up the army. And if one person charges the hill and takes everybody by themselves, they say the army defeated the other side. It's not the work of one, although any work of one may be greatly rewarded because of what they do, but it all makes up one thing. In the same way, you've got three different persons that are co-equal and co-eternal, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They make up the thing that's called God. And any one of them operating in any manner is God at work. That's why a lot of times we're going to see in the Old Testament where it says, and God did this, and you're going to see it was Jesus. So what is he he called? What's his name? His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, the Everlasting Father. Wait a minute. I thought you just said he was the son. How can he be called the son and the father both? You remember one time Jesus said, the Jews came to him, and both the Jews, the Pharisees, they wanted to try to trip him up. And Jesus, he had to, bless his heart, Jesus had to have had fun with these guys. Because he knew, there's not a chance that you're going to trip me up. I'm not stupid. I see you coming. I know what you're thinking. You're not going to trip me up. So what did he do? Sometimes he threw questions back at them. That had to have been the highlight of Jesus' day. Because when he threw questions back at them, he can see them going, what do we say? How do we answer this? Well, First of all, we don't know. But what do we say? We don't know. Well, how we, what do we do? Jesus said, when the question came up about God, Jesus said, I've got a question for you. I mean, after all, you guys are the teachers. I've got a question for you. How is it? Is is the Lord, talking about the Messiah, is the Lord David's son? Or is he David's Lord? And they said, well, he's the Messiah. He's Lord. And he said, well, then how did David, how was it that David said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit on my right hand until I make your enemies my footstool. The Lord, my Lord. Wow, sounds like there's a lot of Lords in there. I don't know. What's their problem? Their problem is the Lord, he is God, he is one. See, their thinking is there's one and there can't be any other. Well, if there can't be any other, how could Jesus possibly be the son of God? Now, folks, let me tell you something. The thing that made Jesus the perfect servant in Mark's gospel was that he was open. The Bible says Jesus was humble. He humbled himself and became obedient to the cross. You know what humility is all about? Humility is not about being beaten down, being broke, being poor, being any of that kind of stuff, and never raising your head and never doing anything worthwhile in life. That's what the church thinks is humility. The church thinks humility is just keeping your head ducked down so that nobody ever knows you are alive. Well, then why are you alive? Jesus said to go occupy till I come. He didn't say hide out. He didn't say keep your head down. He said occupy till I come. The church, thanks to humility, is being beaten down and, and, and broken up. And you hear so much in the church world today about brokenness. I despise that word. Brokenness. Well, you know, God, God loves brokenness. What in the world are people talking about? They love it when you're crushed? God loves it when you're crushed? Really? That's what God's about? Is that the way you do your kids? You love it when your kids are experiencing brokenness? Man, the whole house goes into a funk when your kids experience brokenness. You try to encourage them, you try to lift them up, you try to get them back on track, you try to do all kinds of stuff. God's not into brokenness, but you know what he is into? He's into an open heart. Now, if it takes somebody being broken down physically for them to open their heart, bless their dear soul. That's not what it takes for me. I don't have to get beat up by the world to have an open heart and an open mind to the things of God. That's not what it takes for me. Yeah, but I had to go through the fire, Pastor Mike. I had to go through this test and trial until God could get me where he could use me. Well, you idiot, why didn't you change first? It was up to you after all, wasn't it? Seriously, how stupid do we... Well, that's a rhetorical question. The church is so stupid about so many things. And the reason why we're stupid is the same reason the Pharisees rejected Jesus is because of religious thinking rather than what the truth is. That's why they rejected Jesus. I'm getting ahead of myself. But notice it says, Jesus' name is the mighty God, the everlasting Father. How can it say that Jesus is the Son? How can it say that he's uh, the, the Prince of Peace? How can it say that he's somebody other than the Father and now say he's the Father? Because Jesus and the Father are one. They are distinct personalities, but Jesus tells us in John's gospel that not anything he ever said was of himself, it was of the Father. Not anything he ever did was of himself, it was of the Father. None of the other three gospel writers tell us that. And it's not because they didn't hear it, it's not because it didn't happen when matthew at least Matthew was around, it's because that was not the theme, that was not the thing the Holy Ghost was directing them to bring out. The everlasting father, the prince of peace. Now turn with me over to Micah chapter 5. Let me point something else out to you here real quickly. Matthew chapter 5. Here's another semi-Christmas scripture. You don't hear this too much, but it talks about Bethlehem. And the only reason we know about Bethlehem is because that's where Jesus was born. Verse 2, it says, But thou, Bethlehem uh, Ephrata. Though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto unto me, that is to be ruler of Israel. Well, we know that's talking about Jesus then, right? Some people will say, yeah, but that's David. Well, Jesus was the son of David. That's where we get Jesus being of the line of David. Not only do we have other scriptures where God said about David that the throne shall not depart from your seed. That was certainly Jesus. This is Jesus too. So he's talking about he shall be ruler unto me, or come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel. Now notice what it says about Jesus. It says, whose goings forth have been of from of old, from everlasting. Whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. The margin of my Bible has got a little number there by the word everlasting, and it says Hebrew means the days of eternity. What does that mean? That means Jesus has been going forth from the days of eternity, from the beginning, in beginning was. In beginning existed the word. In beginning existed the word. Now, to make sure we know who we're talking about, let me read to you real quickly from Revelation chapter 19. Don't forget Micah chapter 5. But let me read to you from, uh, from um, what's the name of this word? Revelation chapter 19. I'm getting so ahead of myself I can't even talk. Revelation chapter 19. Let's start reading in verse 11. And we're just going to pull this out of context. I don't care if you know when this is or what it's about or anything else. It doesn't matter. I just want you to see this. Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. And I saw heaven open. This is John speaking. And I saw heaven opened and behold, a white horse. And he that sat upon him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness he does judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Any doubt that that's talking about Jesus? Notice what his name is at the end of time. The same as his name was in beginning, the Word of God. So what does that mean? Well, remember what we just read over in Micah chapter 5? His goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting, from the days of eternity. That means where the Old Testament says that God did or God said, that's Jesus. Because just as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost make up the Godhead, they all have distinct purposes that makes up the team called God. God the Father is the planner. The Bible tells us that it was the Father's plan of redemption. God, the Holy Ghost, is the revealer. How do we know? Because John tells us that Jesus shared that by being the Son of God, that the Holy Ghost would reveal to us. He'd bring all things to our remembrance. He's the one that would cause us to know things to come. He's the revealer. Well, what does Jesus do? He's the one that goes forth. He's the executor of the plan. Back to John chapter 1. Any of this making sense or am I going too fast? Yes and yes? John chapter 1, again, back to verse 1. We may not get out of verse 1 tonight, I don't know. In beginning was the Word. We know that's talking about Jesus. In other words, He existed in beginning, before the creation of the world, and the Word was with God. That means He was in God's presence. That means He's separate from God. God, notice it doesn't say in the the beginning was the Word and the Word was with the Father. If you said it that way, that excludes the Holy Ghost. And God's made up of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. So it says it the only way that it could say it. Now, does John know all this stuff? I don't know. I think there's a lot of this that he does know, and I think there's a lot of it that the Holy Ghost just prompted him to say certain things in certain ways, and he probably thought the same thing that some of the rest of us think after we finish ministering. It's like, wow. Didn't know about that. I say a lot of things during my preaching that I'm, I'm surprised to hear. I'll say certain things from the Word and I'll think, man, if I'll just be cool, everybody will think I already knew that. I didn't know that. I see a lot of things in the Bible while I'm preaching. Maybe the same is true for John. But he says that the only way that is possible for it to be completely accurate. And the Word was with God, not the Father. The Word was with God. And the Word was god same thing he didn't say the word was the father he didn't say the word was the holy ghost he said the word was god because all three make up god the same was in the beginning with god now i want you to notice first thing he establishes is jesus relationship with time he establishes jesus relationship with time no other gospel writer does that paul does a little bit but nobody else the second thing he establishes is God's, uh, with, is Jesus' relationship with the Godhead. The third thing he establishes is that Jesus is God. Now, here's why that's important. Um, hold your finger here and turn with me over to 1st John chapter 1. Here's one of the reasons why Bible scholars think that, uh, um, this gospel was written as late as it was or as late as they claimed that it was. And and we really don't know. It's not like John dated anything or or that kind of stuff. I mean, we're, we're uh, left with uh, historical records, some that are most that are incomplete and other, other things that point to other things. But I want you to notice, we do know that John wrote his epistles later, much later in his ministry. We don't know exactly when, but they were later in his ministry and notice how he starts off. He starts off in chapter one of, in verse one, first John one. He said, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled of the word of life, for the life was manifested and we have seen it and bear witness and show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested unto us. Now that sounds like John saying, we were with Jesus. I don't know the rest of you have seen him, but I saw him. But there's something much more important than that. And that is at the time that John writes this and probably at the time that he wrote the gospel, it's after Peter is off the scene. It's after Paul is off the scene. And one of the great heresies that takes the church is called Gnosticism. And Gnosticism says that Jesus was just an idea. He didn't live in the flesh. Jesus is just the embodiment of what we should be. Now, folks, if you start going down that road, then you're left with Buddhism developing yourself to a higher consciousness. You're left with all kinds of other things that depend on your own works. And Gnosticism was getting into the church. The second generation of the church was not really successful, if you'll read church history. It was not very successful. They were not grounded. They did not have the same grounding as the foundation, the same foundation or grounding as the apostles and the prophets that started the church. And as a result, a lot of things started coming in. Now, you know as well as I do that if you're going to destroy a tree, it's a whole lot easier to destroy it when it's young than when it's big and tall. It takes a lot of work to destroy a tree once it's grown. In the same way, the devil worked to try to destroy the church when we were in infancy, when it was in its infancy. Consequently, this Gnosticism is everywhere. This idea, this, this intellectual idea about God and Jesus and what it means and just we need to be good people and develop good character and I'm okay, you're okay, and God's okay maybe too, and who knows how it came out. We've seen it manifest in all kinds of goofy things in our country. But that's the thing that's taking place. And what John is saying when he starts his epistle, and the same thing he says when he starts his gospel, is that we're not talking about some idea. We're talking about something that was real. That's why verse 14 of John chapter 1 is so important. And the word was made flesh. We're not talking about an idea. We're not talking about a concept. We're talking about something real. That's what he starts off in his epistles. He said, we touched him. All you fancy elite intellectual Gnostics out there, I touched him. I saw him before and after. Don't you tell me about Jesus being some idea. I saw him. And folks, in my opinion, that's the reason why Jesus had John live so long on the earth. He was the last remaining witness. And that's what he said. He said, we bear witness. We bear testimony of what we have seen and heard. Turn with me over to chapter 4. He comes even stronger on this now. He said, beloved, believe not every spirit. There are a lot of spirits out there. There are a lot of things. Paul said, there are many voices in the air and none are without signification. In other words, test them out. There's a lot of voices. A lot of times people will say they're hearing voices and those voices are telling them to do wrong things. Not every voice is, just because it's supernatural doesn't mean it's God. So he said, beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits. Test them, whether they are of God. How are we going to know if something's of God? Well, does it line up with the word? God will never contradict his word. No spirit of God will ever contradict the word of God. Jesus said the spirit of the the spirit of God was the spirit of truth. Meaning he's the spirit of the word because the word is truth. So he said, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they have God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. He didn't say many false prophets will come. Paul said false prophets would come. John says they're already here. They're probably talking about two different time periods. Because Paul says, I know by the spirit of God, he said, the Holy Ghost has shown me that which is to come because these things are going to happen. These things are going to come in among you. John speaks of it from a present tense point of view. He says, they're here. This is what was told us. Because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Hereby know ye the spirit of God. Here's the way you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that confesses not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of Antichrist wherewith you have heard that it should come and even now is already in the world. Notice John says you can tell the Antichrist in his day, you can tell the Antichrist because those are the ones that are saying Jesus was an idea rather than a man. Well then why didn't John emphasize of Jesus being a man? Because Matthew did that. Mark did that. And Luke did that. Now John's going to wrap it up showing that Jesus is the Son of God. Now let's end up with John chapter 1 again. We'll start again in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Some people have a hard time. um, Some people have a hard time, it seems to me, you judge this for yourself. Maybe this doesn't apply to you and and I hope it doesn't. But it seems to me that some people have a hard time thinking of Jesus as the word because they don't think of words as being real. They think of words as being just something spoken and there's, there's no reality to it and, and so forth. But I want you to think about what words are. Words do three main things. First of all, words reveal. I can think of something And I can be thinking the most spiritual thought there is, but unless I couch it in words, unless I clothe it in words, you don't know what it is. I could have something revealed to me. I could have something that is spoken to me by the Holy Ghost, something that will absolutely minister to you and make a change in your life like nothing else could. But if I don't put it in words, you don't know. Right? So words reveal things. Words reveal things. That's important. Let me let me jump ahead of myself a little bit here. Look with me over to uh, verse 18. It says, no man has seen God at any time. The only begotten son, which is in the bosom of the father, he has declared him. The word declare means to tell or show forth when Jesus is called the word of God. It doesn't mean Jesus is just words that God has spoken. The concept may be difficult for us to get our head around, but you need to understand the word is the only thing that can communicate God's plans, his essence, his character. I may be the best person in the world, but unless I tell you what the foundation of my character is, you don't know. So those words reveal. You know as well as I do that, that um, when we get older and we begin to, to appreciate our parents and, and other godly men and women, we look forward to those times. And after they're gone, we remember back to those times where we talked to them and they shared their hearts with us. Why? Because those words revealed something that was in their being. It revealed something that was in their core. Oh, I'd give anything for another chance to go back and talk to Brother Hagen. I remember the things he talked to me about... It, it, you remember in the Old Testament, it says after Jesus was raised from the dead, two of the disciples were r- walking on the road to Emmaus and Jesus appeared to him and he, they didn't know who he was. And it says that Jesus asked him questions. He said, what are you guys down in the mouth about? What are you depressed about? They said, well, haven't you heard Jesus was slain? And oh, it's just terrible. And all this kind of stuff. Well, them not knowing it's Jesus, Jesus said, don't you know what the scripture says? And he opened up everything that the Old Testament prophets said about Jesus. And, and after he got to, to town the, the, where they were going, they said, well, come with us. Don't leave us. Come with us. Let's sit down and have dinner with us. And so they sit down, they say the blessing, and then Jesus disappears. And then they realized, I think that was Jesus. And then they started talking it over, and they said, oh, didn't our hearts burn within us when he shared those scriptures, when he talked with us? Didn't our hearts burn within us? That's the best way I can describe the time, some of the times I had talking to Brother Hagin. Because there would be times, especially after services late at night, he'd just open his heart. He'd share his heart and just, oh, man, my heart just burned. I wasn't mature enough to handle a lot of it that I heard, but, man, I'd like the chance now. Especially now. (laughs) He'd been in heaven for 10 years. (laughs) I bet he's got some real good things to share now. You see what I mean? That's the importance of words. And folks, realize that everything about this planet is based on words. Your words are containers. They contain your character. They contain your essence. They contain your thoughts, whether good or bad. Remember what the Bible says. By your words, you'll be justified and by your words, you'll be condemned. Because those words reveal what's on the inside. Jesus said an evil man out of the evil thoughts of his heart brings forth words. He speaks words. They reveal what's on the inside of a person. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. I had a friend in Bible school that used to quote this verse this way. He said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth slips. There's a lot of truth to that. Because when you when you drop your guard, what's really on the inside will come out of your mouth. That's why faith is a product of words. Believing in your heart and saying words. Everything about this planet is based on words. Everything. So words reveal. Words communicate. Words communicate. If I'm thinking a spiritual thought, let's say God gives me a plan. Well, let's talk about Moses. Moses went up on the mountaintop and he got the law. And he spent 40 days and 40 nights up there. And man, I mean, it was terrible. They saw lightnings and thunders and earthquakes and all this kind of stuff. Everybody below said nobody can live through this. Moses, one of the things Moses was getting on the mountaintop was the plan for the tabernacle in the wilderness. So he comes down, he's got the plan. Now he's carrying the stone tablets. Where's the plan for the tabernacle? Moses did not take a stenographer. He did not have a tape recorder. Where are the plans? Right there. God told him. He gave him the ideas. He gave him the plans for it. And it's all in the mind of Moses. How are the people going to carry out those plans? He's going to have to communicate them. He's going to have to put those plans into words. Folks, that's where vision comes in. We gained a vision of God through Jesus' words. In other words, just like verse 18 says, only the Son of God can declare or show forth the Father. You try to understand God any other way other than Jesus, and you'll get hopelessly confused. That's where the church is, for the most part. The church is trying to understand God by experience. I don't understand why God let this happen to me. Well, look at Jesus. He'll give you the answer. Most of the time, that answer is going to be, God didn't let this happen to you. You let this happen to you. Through what you believe and through what you said. The third thing words do is manifest something. They show something forth. Now, we talk about gifts of the Spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 talks about gifts of the Spirit and, or talks about certain things that the church calls gifts of the Spirit. But specifically, the Bible calls them manifestations of the Spirit. In other words, it's a showing forth of something supernatural. Words show forth the supernatural. And whether you know it or not, your thoughts are supernatural they come eventually from your from your spirit they're a product of spiritual things now not every, th- every thought starts in your spirit but if you accept it even a wrong thought if you accept it and make it a part of you then once it comes out of your mouth that's a supernatural thing it may be a supernatural thing for evil but it's a supernatural thing but if you get thoughts if you have thoughts in line with the word or thoughts that god has brought to you concerning your life or his plan for your life or something along those lines, then when you communicate those plans, you are showing those forth. And those plans that God shows you will never come to pass unless you them. That doesn't mean you have to say them to other people. Most of the time, you're better off if you don't. But you do have to them. You do have to speak them. That's why when you have times of prayer, and you need to have times of prayer where it's just you, where the Holy Ghost will give you things to say, you need to be aware that you can speak out things in the Spirit that will cause them to come to pass. Brother Hagin used to make a statement that, that floored me. I had no experience along this line, and it floored me with the first bunches of times that I heard it. He said, everything I'm doing in my ministry now came as a result of praying out things in the, in the Holy Ghost. Well, I'd ask him about that. What do you mean by that? What do you mean by that? Well, the first time, a couple of times I asked him, he just laughed. He wouldn't answer me. He just laughed. Oh, just keep on coming, Mike. You'll, you'll figure it out. Come on cut that out tell me he wouldn't he wouldn't tell me and then i had a chance to pray with him and then when i saw him pray sometimes there were times where i'd hear him pray out things he'd pray out things in in other tongues and then all of a sudden he would start saying things in english and i realized after one of those times of prayer brother hagan said all right well boys we have to change the way we're doing some things and he'd start saying some things that i had been listening he thought i was praying i'm listening forget praying i want to learn something i'm listening And I'd hear him say, we're going to have to do this, that, and the other. And I'm thinking, well, that's what you just said while you were praying. Praying in tongues, and then you'd pray out some of these words in English. And sometimes it would take a while for those words to join together. He'd have to keep going until those words joined together and and made a coherent thought in English. They may have known it all the time in other tongues, but then it came together in English, and then he said, okay, here's what we're going to do. So I started asking him. I said, is that what you mean by praying things out in the Holy Ghost? He said, yeah, 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 that's it, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm thinking... Wow, that's cool. Okay, Holy Ghost, give them to me. It doesn't come that way. It comes by spending time in prayer. See, a lot of times people never find the the plan of God for their life. They never pray out those things in other tongues because they won't spend time praying in other tongues. They'll talk about praying in other tongues. They'll talk about being Spirit-filled. Oh, they'll talk about the move of God. Talk about the glory. Those quit talking about it and pray. Thank you very much. It's not about talking about prayer. It's about praying. If everybody that talked about prayer prayed, oh, dear Lord, the world would have been won by now. But most people would rather talk about it and even teach on it. Oh, let's teach on prayer. No, let's pray. Oh, let's teach on it. We need to let other people know. How are you going to let other people know if you don't know? I'm a little bit ahead of myself here, but the next thing John's going to talk about is in verse 6 about the one that came to bear witness of the, of the light. The one that came to bear witness of the Son of God. The, to bear witness means to tell something you know. You know why most Christians are poor witnesses? Because they don't know anything. You go to places like the beach, or we were in San Francisco a couple of weeks ago, uh, last week I guess, and uh, and there were people with signs about Jesus and all this kind of stuff, and none of the signs meant anything. Repent or die. Jesus says. Well, how do you know? How can you tell somebody that you know? I've never seen anybody that holds up a sign and says, Jesus, will cha- Jesus is real. He changed my life. He can change yours too. Now, folks, that's a testimony. You're telling something you know, but all of it is this ethereal. It's this philosophical. It's this, oh, you got to have four spiritual laws. You got to do it this way. You got to convince somebody. Tell somebody what you know. Has he done anything for you? Well, no, not really. Well, that's why you're not witnessing anywhere. What's he done for you? Well, Pastor Mike, what if they ask me a question? (gasps) Oh, dear God, a question. What will we do? What if they do? What if you have to say, you know, I don't know the answer to that. But here's what I do know. I know Jesus changed my life. You think that's going to put them off? Come on. But well, we come up with this idea that we got to have a sermon to preach. Oh. Four points in an offering. It's telling people what you know. It's telling people what you know. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. Verse 3, and all things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. You know what that means? That means Jesus is God, because you can't create something unless you're God. God's the only creator there is. Man, in all of his wisdom. Oh, boy, we really know a lot, don't we? Science is so developed. We've figured out so many things scientifically. Man hadn't created anything. He can't create a blade of grass. We hear a lot about cloning. Well, we're cloning. We're splitting atoms. We're creating. Man's never created anything, and man never will create anything. Only God can create. Man can duplicate. Man can copy. But man can't create anything. Jesus is creator. Jesus created everything that you see, which means he had to predate the creation. You see where John's going with this? He starts off saying right off the bat, Jesus was God. Jesus was in the beginning. Jesus is the word. Now, think about uh, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. It says in the beginning, Paul starts off this way in Hebrews 1, 1. He said, um, God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spoke in times past unto the prophets, hath in these last days spoken to us by his, King James says, by his son. Literally in the Greek, it says by son. What does it mean? It means Jesus is the final spokesman for God. Why? Because he's the word. Because he's the word. Finally, notice verse four. In him was life and the life was the light of men. Now, let me let me finish with this. I'm, I'm, there's a lot of places we could go with this, but let me let me close with this. Where it says the life was the light of men. It, it's talking right in connection. It connects the fact that he's the creator of all things. Nothing was created that he didn't make. So that tells us what his work was part of his goings forth from everlasting or from the days of eternity, part of his goings forth was to be the creator. That was his job. You don't see anything that where the Holy Ghost was the creator. The Holy Ghost is a revealer. He moved over the face of the deep, but doesn't say he created anything. Yet the Bible tells us again and again that Jesus is the one that created everything. And what did he create? Well, the first thing he created was life and man. In him was life, And the life was the light of man. Now, what does that mean? Please don't think I'm saying that there is a spark of divinity in all of mankind. There is not. That is not what I'm saying. That's what New Age says. Oh, well, there's a spark of divinity in all of mankind. And if we just continue to evolve, then we can be God. Well, you can be an idiot, but you'll never be God. That's just stupid. There is not a spark of divinity in man. Yet, however, there is a spirit in man. And that spirit is originated by the creator. That's why Paul said to the Romans, he said, there is a law on the inside of every man that tells them right and wrong. And if anybody never hears the gospel preached to them, then they'll be judged by that law that they knew on the inside of them rather than the preaching of the gospel. How did that law, how did that knowledge, how did that conscience come unto all men? Because God created it. God, meaning Jesus, as part of his goings forth, created that in all of mankind and that's what it means the life and in him was life and the life was the light of men every time you see the word light it's going to talk about something spiritual it's going to talk about revelation it's going to talk about development it's going to talk about something that is of god and of spirit in him was life and the life was the light of men Now, he's going to talk, John's going to go a little bit further, and John's going to talk about those that he gave power to become the sons of God. Those that he gave power to become the sons of God means those that have accepted him as Lord and Savior. That means the life that is in you is the light that will reveal, that will develop, that will bring you into an equality with Jesus, the Son of God. Because Jesus said, Jesus said, and John's the only one that tells us this, Jesus said that we are all now sons of God. And he said that to people that weren't even born again. Well, what does he say about you? John says that, says the same thing, inspired by the Holy Ghost in the epistle that he writes, the letters that he writes to the church. He said, beloved, now are we the sons of God. And it does not yet appear what we shall be. When he appears, when he shows up. In other words, we don't have our redeemed bodies, but that's the only difference there is. We are now the sons of God. Well, I'm excited about the gospel of John. I don't know where we're going with this, but it's going to be good. Amen. Let's all stand together. (coughs) Father, we thank you for the word. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the word made flesh. Thank you, Lord, for your great plan of redemption Thank you that it was carried out by your Son, Jesus. Heavenly Father, thank you that you've given us the Holy Ghost in answer to Jesus' prayer to reveal all things to us. Help us to understand, Father. Help us to understand. Reveal to us, Holy Spirit. Counsel us through the Word and cause us to see the exceeding greatness of your power that works in us now as believers. Enable us, Holy Spirit. Show us that which has already been given to us that we might do the works of our heavenly father just as jesus did speak his words and do his works in the precious and holy name of jesus we pray amen amen god bless you thank you for being with us